ourselves, that we even have selves. We want only warmth and comfort and to be filled with sweetness. Our mothers are that warmth and comfort and sweetness. They are, almost literally, everything. But we grow and a realization dawns. We are not our mothers. We are separate and can be separated. We must discover who we are. Our mothers are often there to walk the path with us. But even if they are not, they are shadows or question marks along the way. We look to our moms to answer so many questions. Who will I be like? What can I do? What can I expect? As our selfhood emerges, there is often a give and take, even a tug of war as we try to find ourselves within and without of our mothers. It is so hard. We wonder if our mother's strengths will be our strengths, her pitfalls the same as ours. At times it may seem as though we are walking the same path a generation apart, and sometimes it is clear that our lives have diverged so strongly from the very beginning that neither we nor our mothers know what to expect. As mothers ourselves, we may cringe at the ways our own unfavorite traits show up in our children. Or maybe we see ourselves for the first time as someone else might see us, and find that we are worthy of the love and compassion that we never would have allowed ourselves otherwise. We may hold tightly to our children, wanting more than anything to steer and protect them to what seems like the safest, easiest way. Or we may be confused at this person who, they say, was born of our body, but whom is nearly unrecognizable to us. All of this is to say that being a mom is complicated, and that having a mom is also complicated. Complicated but beautiful. The intimacy, the tangles, the back and forth between the two people as they separate and discern themselves from each other. It's a dance that we perform throughout our lives, long after our mothers are gone even. We still remember and parse out the differences. What they gave us, what we learned from them, how, simply by existing, they molded us into what and who we are. This is Cocoon, Stories of Gestation. I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best. Our story today is a story of a mother and her daughter. And the daughter is a mother herself. This is actually the first part of her story. We'll share the second part in an upcoming episode. Okay, my name is Meg. And I live in the Seattle area with my husband and our five children. My oldest is 12 and my youngest is one. I grew up as an only child, and my, yeah, so it was kind of quiet. I grew up around a lot of cousins and a lot of my mom's family, and she wanted to have more kids and just got married. She was a little bit older. My parents were a little older when they got married, and then I was just four years, then I was born, and I was the only one that was born, so... So she was, she was a very um, smart woman and very educated and really always wanted to be a mom. She always wanted to be a mother. And so I feel very lucky that I got to be her daughter because it was something that she really poured her whole self into. It was partly generational, I think, but it was also just something she always wanted was to get married and start having a family but she just didn't meet anybody. So she ended up having this fuller life in her 20s that I kind of envy in a way, you know. Um, She served a mission. She went and lived in Belgium for a year and a half and France, and she got to see like the Tour de France and have just wonderful experiences traveling there. And when she came back, she 
finished up school and then still wasn't married, so she thought, okay, I'll go get a master's degree, and she got a master's degree in library science and really studied children's literature and just loved sharing wonderful characters and, and books, and she loved beautiful homes and just making things beautiful, and she kept a really, really beautiful home. And she was just really good at finding finding beauty wherever she was. She had a medical condition that made her hands and feet, the muscles deteriorated in her hands and feet. And so as I was growing up, she was pretty active, like able to walk and do a lot of stuff, but she started to slow down more as she got older. And she wasn't able to do as much with her hands. I know that was hard for her because she wanted to do more with the kids, but the way that my kids remember her was that she was like always there and she was always a listening ear and they like would just curl up on her bed and watch movies together and they just they loved that. They loved that about her and they loved that she was she was with them and present and always always willing to read them a story and, and listen. For the first seven years of my life, I was two weeks old. My family moved to Nebraska from Utah, and it was I, it was a challenge for her to move away from family and to the Midwest and just a tiny, tiny town where there wasn't much. But she talked about that time later fondly because she felt like we were able to become a closer family unit, and I think it helped her to see what was important to her and to not get too, um, she felt, I think she felt like she didn't get very distracted by it, but I also felt like she found beauty and wonder in all kinds of places, and that's something that I try to pass on to my kids. Well, Meg was very close to her mom growing up. Her own life started to veer away from her mom's path when she was still in college. She was studying film, and at the end of her junior year, realized it was entirely possible that like her mom, she would be single when she graduated. She started making plans for grad school, thinking about getting a master's degree in writing or critical studies, maybe even being a professor. Her dad had a PhD, her mom a master's. Further education seemed like a good path. But then... Then I ended up dating one of my, one of my friends that I had met that junior year, and things just went really quickly. And so by the time I graduated from college, I found myself married and a month away from having our first child, which was another thing I did not expect. So I had kind of this opposite experience. It was what my mom always wanted to have happen for her and had to patiently wait for it. And here I was kind of just thrust into it. The Singleys stayed in their college town for another two years while Meg's husband, Brad, finished his undergrad and then his master's degree. They lived close enough to Meg's parents that they got to spend a lot of time together and to see their granddaughter go through her babyhood. But when Brad finished school, he and Meg decided it would be good for them to set off on their own adventure. Brad found a job in Seattle, and they moved there while Meg was pregnant with their second child. They went back to visit for Thanksgiving and again at Christmas time. During those visits, they started to notice that something was wrong. My mom started talking about how she just, she wasn't feeling well, and it kind of, it started pretty slowly, but 
she just was not her regular self and she didn't know what was going on and just kind of brushed it off like oh I think this will pass you know but wasn't up for doing all of the same family dinners just wanted to stay close to home and get rest and she wasn't sleeping well and then we came back home and that was our last visit we were planning for a while because I was I was pregnant with our second child and so around it was New Year's Eve she it just escalated very quickly she felt incredibly sick and had to go to the emergency room and so that was the first time that we knew like there's something more seriously wrong here and by her by her birthday on January 15th she had been diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer and on her birthday she was um, she underwent her first surgery, first of six surgeries that she would go through. And here I was, well, a little more than eight months pregnant, and so I couldn't, and it was winter, and it's, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go be there. I just felt like a sitting duck, and it was, it was really hard. <laughs> it was hard, but I just did a lot of you know, it, it's one of those things, too, that makes you ponder things, and all of a sudden it cast our timing of staying in school into a totally different light just already, and, you know, made us, made us, it just makes you think more about, about life, and then my, my son was born, and I remember getting a distinct thought that my mom is going to meet her grandchildren. She's going to meet my son and we're going to eat Indian food together again. And like, there's going to be more time. And that was really comforting for me. So while her mom's initial diagnosis was pretty dire and it seemed entirely possible that she could die very soon, Meg held onto the hope that they could have more time. Another doctor who was more specialized in ovarian cancer had a sunnier diagnosis. Yes, it was bad. But with treatment, she could have a few good years left. And with that, she went into her first surgery, which left her with a 22-inch scar on her abdomen. Three months later, Meg packed up her two-year-old and her two-month-old and drove down to visit. Her mom got to meet her first grandson, and they ate Indian food together. They started a pattern that Meg and her family would keep up for the next six and a half years between surgeries and chemotherapy treatments, taking each new baby to meet their grandma when they were a few months old. By 2015, Meg's mom had had three major surgeries and a couple of minor ones. She'd had 34 chemotherapy treatments. She'd gotten to meet each of her four grandkids when they were just a couple of months old and continued to see them periodically as they grew. I mean, I, you know, I would definitely rather not have had her have to go through what she did, but she, she never complained and so that kind of helped set the tone. She was incredibly strong. And I think sometimes it surprised people how strong she was because she was so soft-spoken and, you know, she wasn't, like, she wasn't one you'd see out running in the neighborhood and stuff because of her other condition. But she just was always so grateful for the treatment that she got and so grateful for her wonderful nurses and everybody. And 
so she kind of set the tone, I think, for all of us. Um, getting that kind of diagnosis can be such a, it just, it changes your perspective on things. And so suddenly instead of, I don't know, it kind of, it kind of felt like we got extra time. It kind of felt like a clock reset almost. And so it just made, made every moment we had together feel like such a miracle. But that summer, it became obvious that things were changing. She wasn't bouncing back as quickly, and the treatments didn't seem as effective. You know, it, at this point, it had been six years, I think. And so it, we were starting to really feel like it was borrowed time. I was able to go again in June of 2015 and be there for my cousin's wedding and take my two youngest kids, so my my newly five-year-old and new one-year-old, and spend time together. And I went optimistically thinking that I would, you know, be like, be able to accompany her to wedding events, but ended up going in her place instead because she just was not up for, for going anywhere at all and really would only go in the car for doctor visits. When I made this trip, we had just bought our house and done our big family California trip and we were looking ahead to doing some remodeling in the fall in our in our upstairs and so it was just kind of being in a very busy busy spot and I my mom actually designed our our floor plan built the house that I lived in from the time I was eight until I left home. And so I w she always loved looking at floor plans and looking at homes. And I think in another life, she would have been an architect and been really wonderful at it and an interior designer. And I remember like trying to walk her through the floor plan of the home we just, we were moving into that would be ours. And she was having a harder time following it than she normally would have and so we, just, we started to see little signs that she was really declining more and that it was starting to go a little bit faster. My five-year-old at the time really enjoyed having that one-on-one -on -one time with Grandma that she didn't always get to have when we went and visited before. And she had been so... She was younger, so it was just different for her then. So it was, it was really good to see the two of them together and for her to be able to see Soren and he was, you know, starting to, he was getting more ready to walk and, and more chatty and just doing those cute little one-year-old things. The rest of the summer was a bit of a whirlwind as the Singleys planned the renovations for their new house. They also went on a road trip to visit Brad's family in California but by the time August rolled around and they made it back to Utah for another visit, it was obvious that Meg's mom was declining rapidly and they needed to change their approach to her treatment. Together with her mom, they decided that it might be time to think about palliative or hospice care. For a long time, we didn't want to talk about logistics because um, we just, I think it just wasn't time. Like we just could tell it wasn't time yet. But, you know, she, she went in because she was feeling badly again, like maybe the cancer was back, but they actually couldn't find any cancer that time. And so they they talked about doing another round of chemotherapy, and she went through one treatment and then just 
was not being able to bounce back or recover or feel any better. And so they decided to start doing more palliative care. And then in August when we were there and she had started to climb more rapidly, then when I had seen her in June, um, we, we thought, you know, it's my husband's very, very practical in the best possible way. And it was so nice to have someone who was far enough away from the situation that could look and say, Hey, maybe it's, it's time for, to do this. <laughs> and so we, we decided, you know, maybe he brought up, maybe it is time to look at hospice care and we agreed and we were not totally sure how to bring it up with my mom because we never wanted to we never wanted to put things on her we never wanted to put it onto her that or like bury her before before it was time you know but we also heard and you know there was this part of me that had heard stories you know there's people who start hospice care and then they make a full recovery and even though I knew realistically that wasn't very likely, there was part of me that went, oh, well, you know, she might do so much better with hospice care, which can happen for people. It just relieves so much stress that we get several more months with her, and that would be amazing. And so we kind of went in talking to her about it with that kind of attitude, like, you know, we think this will be such a relief for you to not have to go into the doctor, which has become such a hardship and burden and it was interesting she kind of it she kind of surprised me a little bit because she just responded so positively and um she had she did not seem super upset about having to be in a hospital bed they brought a hospital bed to our home and replaced her bed that she had always spent all these years recovering in and and changes that I think can be hard for anybody and um, changes that I thought thought would be harder for her, she responded really positively and seemed really relieved. And it was kind of then that I realized how hard the last year had been for her and maybe how much she had sensed of what was coming and not necessarily spoken aloud to us. That visit also yielded a surprising moment that gave Meg a treasured memory. My daughter got a camera for her birthday, and my mom does not like pictures of herself and just never really did and didn't really like being in pictures. And I think any of us, if we were just, you know, in our pajamas, like, we wouldn't want to be in pictures either. But when my daughter asked for a selfie with her, she just was like, oh, yeah. And... So we, those are some of the last pictures that we have of her were on my daughter's little tiny cheap digital camera. When they went back to Seattle, they were on high alert, feeling like things could happen quickly. But it was also Meg's birthday, and while her family tried to make it a special day for her, Meg was especially worried. I just remember sitting on my couch watching... The Girls of Rochefort is the movie. I'm not... They feed a Rochefort. I have the worst accent. I'm very unpracticed. But I just... Just watching that movie and just waiting... We were we were talking to my dad off and on that day, and it was starting to... It's starting to be <laughs> pretty 
It so- it started like as the day progressed, it started to get a little bit more and more dire. And I, you know, I but I still wondered if it would just be up and down, or we didn't know how long I would be gone. And I remember saying a prayer that I could know when to go because I would need like a day to travel. And and very very clearly by that night I knew I needed to leave on Tuesday. My dad, as he had for the last several months, just couldn't leave her side. And we just walked walked in and kind of got, you know, just carried, I had Soren with me and we just walked right into her room and she was laying in, she was laying in bed and she probably had oxygen at this point. She did. So she was laying in bed and she had an oxygen tube by her nose and her eyes were closed and she starting to struggle with breathing a little bit more and was just very different than when we had seen her a couple weeks before and even just like not even like 10 days before and the the nurses had commented that they were kind of surprised at how quickly she was she was going going downhill um And so I was able to walk into that room, and I wasn't sure what to expect. I knew my dad, who had lost his own mom when he was 26, had had a really hard time with hospitals and with dying. She was in a coma at the end of her life. And so I knew that I had to try to step up for him and and try to be, you know, try to experience it all for myself, too, but also just try to be extra strong for him and... um, that that would be the way I could be a support to him and try to help out when he had done all of all of the caretaking of my mom for all those years and without too much help from me. And so I was able to go in, in her room and he was already in there sitting with her, holding her hand, and he said, oh, you know, Meg's here. And I walked to her bedside and I, just, I took her hand and... And I said, I love you, Mom. And she kind of opened her eyes and she said, I love you too. And those were the last words that we heard her speak. Over the next day, they tiptoed around the house and tried to give her mom the space she needed. Whenever they came into her bedroom, she became more agitated. So they mostly tried to let her rest. They read up on the stages of death, and as they did... Meg felt that this was a process similar to childbirth, that her body knew how to do it, that it was a natural thing to happen, that it would happen in its own time and way. Between 1 and 2 a.m. on Thursday morning, they could no longer hear her labored breathing. Meg's dad went to check on her and found that she was gone. We talked a bit about the idea that the dying process can be similar to the birthing process. There are, as in childbirth, some distinct stages or symptoms like the death battle and terminal agitation. It is scary, but it's productive. It's moving us along, theoretically, at least in some belief systems, to a better place. There is perhaps pain for the dying person, but there is not necessarily injury. And it leads to completion, a completion of a life. And as of someone entering the world when someone leaves it, 
It is also the beginning of a new stage for their loved ones. Meg and her dad spent the following days mourning, of course, but also planning and executing the funeral and discovering what this particular completion would lead to. We don't know, you know, we don't know how we're, what we're going to do or how we're going to act when we, when we go through those big changes or go through big traumas or whatever. And, um, there were a few things I knew that, like going into this, that I kind of ended up thinking about for years. One of the things was, I will, I will speak at my mom's funeral. I'm her only child, so I, I will want to, I will want to speak. But I didn't anticipate creating any kind of memorial to her. And what ended up happening was they, they came and took the, the hospital bed away. And so her bedroom that had once been like where she really spent so much of her time in those last few years, it, all of her time really, um, there was just space. And so I found myself wanting to, my, my dad had, we had already kind of known and made plans that he would be working to sell the, clear out and sell the home within as soon as he could. And so part of what I wanted to do was to help sort things. And it just we just needed to have something to do. <laughs> and so we started organizing things. And my, my mom loved flowers and ended up just having a lot of, of artificial flowers all over the house. And she had some in the closets for different seasons and just all over. And I was kind of following the KonMari way, I guess, of sorting things and putting things in categories. And we ended up filling the space where her bed had been and where she had been and where she had passed with all of these artificial flowers. And it felt so cheesy to me, but it also felt so natural and like what I needed to do. And we ended up bringing pictures there too. And it ended up being a space where when we were struggling or just feeling like we needed a minute then um we would go and sit there and it it showed me like this I it cast into a new perspective like why people do what we do and and it was it was really helpful to be able to have that space if you'd asked Meg a dozen or so years ago what her life would look like she might have imagined that it would look similar to her mom's life an advanced degree some world travel getting married in her 30s, and going from there. But as we know, that didn't happen. The life she had shared so closely with her mom began to be her own and to diverge widely from her mom's own experience. And with the cancer diagnosis and treatment, they really had to let go of whatever expectations they may have had for each other. But that didn't mean they had to let go of each other. This was a big part of our conversation, how one of the most important and possibly hardest things we must do as mothers, is let our children live their own lives. There seem to be several places along Meg's path where her life diverged from her mom's. Getting married earlier, having multiple kids, moving away from home and staying there. At each juncture, her mother could have been worried or concerned or even unsupportive, perhaps feeling like she wouldn't be able to relate as well to her daughter if their lives were too different. And from Meg's perspective, there was certainly concern that she wasn't holding up her end of the deal. As her only child, is it wrong of her to live so far away as she was enduring so many surgeries and chemotherapy treatments. But Meg's mom was eager to see where her daughter's life took her. She never asked her to come back. She gave her full permission to live her life and not worry so much about what was going on at home. 
one thing, one maybe one of the greatest lessons that she taught me with that, sorry, <laughs> was that she gave me permission to do that. And I was thinking about that a lot today, especially. And, you know, she would just say, well, if you moved back here, we wouldn't have such a beautiful place to come visit you and come see and like adventures to go to go take together and, and enjoy. And she had never been up here before. We moved up here and she talked about how beautiful it was and just loved having the excuse to travel anywhere. But I think about that as a mother and I have, I have more kids than she did and I can't imagine if I only had one of my, if I only had one child and they left that I, it would be really hard for me to be okay with that I think and, and yet I feel like she knew it was maybe what I needed and to be able to build more of my own life here and that's probably the most that's probably the best example of how unselfish she was and so something I think about as a mother is am I going to be able to be that unselfish and are there ways that now I can be trying to channel that kind of love and an understanding and optimism that she did it's been over two and a half years since her mom died Meg is still discovering the small ways that she misses her, realizing that Soren and Helen will not know her voice, wishing she could get her counsel as her oldest daughter becomes a teenager, feeling down and then noticing that it is the 20th of whatever month it is, that another month has passed without her mom. She says that as an only child, sometimes her life didn't seem real to her until she could tell her mom about it. Not being able to call and share what her kids are doing has been really hard. But then again, she has so many happy memories of her mom that keep popping up in unexpected places. Like while walking the streets of Norway and seeing flowers and lace curtains in all the windows. And there is also Helen. Helen. Helen is where we are going to pick up the story next time. Thank you, Meg, for sharing your story and sharing your mom with us. Thanks to Ben Howell and Ellen Barnhart for the music, to producer Emeritus Ryan Barnhart for getting this ship off the ground, and of course, uh, to Micah Heiselt, who, you may not believe this, but he landed six quads his first time on the ice. So take that, Nathan Chen. And feel free to talk back on Facebook, Instagram, Apple Podcasts, or our website, cocoonstories.com. 